This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Ordinary Evil. The subtitle, in May 1970, an altar boy was murdered in Massachusetts. The crime will never be solved. A novel by Jean Ferraro, who joins me from near Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Jean. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Pleasure visiting with you. You have an extensive background as a producer and have uh, worked in media for a number of years. This is your first published novel. Share a little of the background into how this novel got to be written and how long it took. Well, it took me a long time. I was raised Catholic. Uh, I grew up Catholic, and I grew up Catholic in Massachusetts uh, at a time when the culture kind of permeated everything. A lot of elected officials were Catholic. A lot of the police were Catholic. Uh, and I grew up in the 50s when it just was a different time, very different than today. When you didn't have cell phones, you didn't have uh, a lot of media. Uh, it was a much quieter time. And so uh, I got to thinking the more I learned about the, as the sexual abuse crisis hit the Catholic Church, uh, I became very interested in the subject because uh, having been raised the way I was. So I thought that it was very interesting that it took so long for everything to get revealed, and it seemed to me that the origins had to go much deeper than uh, what came out at the time in the late 90s and just after the uh, millennium. So uh, I did a lot of research. Uh, I looked into a lot of different uh, cases, events, books, newspapers, and uh, I decided to uh, write a book that would give people an idea of how these things could have happened and, and the kind of culture at the time. And that's how the book came about. Is everything in your book fictional in, in nature, or was it based on some, some actual events that had taken place in Massachusetts? Many of the things that are in the book are based on actual events. They've been, uh, I've obviously changed them in many ways. Uh, some of them are combinations of things. Uh, some characters have, uh, have antecedents in real characters. Uh, but a lot of the stuff that I took to come up with the plot came out of newspapers and uh, the research of people who were doing uh, reporting on the crisis when they were looking into its origins. And, and so uh, there are a number of characters in the book. There's a few characters that are actually real. Uh, and, uh, for instance, the, uh, you know, the book has a crucifixion scene very early in the book. Yes. That goes on. That goes on. It goes on every year. And... Uh, uh, so uh, that wasn't made up. That came out of an uh, article in the uh, Boston Globe a few years ago. So, I mean, you know, a lot of it is based in some kind of actual event. In actual events. You have uh, penned nearly 356 pages of, of uh, content. Would you describe this as character-driven uh, primarily, or is this a mystery thriller? How would you uh, best describe it? Well, I think, you know, I think that what's interesting is I like to think that 
the the idea of the tagline in, in 1970, Alter Boy was murdered in Massachusetts, the crime will never be solved. That it's uh, that's kind of the key, you know. Well, why won't it be solved? I right. mean, what kind of a crime happened? Uh, I'd say it's also character driven because uh, all the characters, most of the characters, share one thing in common: they're Catholics. But where they are on the uh, Catholic scale, whether you know what class they are, what social class they are, uh, whether they're uh, they tend to be uh, working class people, cops, uh, uh, lawyers, uh, government officials, uh, or they tend to be uh, simple priests or priests are in the aristocracy of the church, right on up to the Vatican itself. You know, it's, so they all ha- each each one of them has a role to play, and and the interesting thing is they're all whether they realize it or not, and most don't realize it, they are all setting a mechanism in motion that, you know, eventually uh, resulted in one of the biggest scandals that uh, ever hit the United States You've talked and the Catholic. You've talked about a main character, an altar boy who is murdered. Is that uh, personality or the background of that child, is that explored in your novel? Yeah, it is. I mean, you spend a lot of time with the family. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time with the family because uh, otherwise you won't understand how the culture kind of invades everything. Uh, you know, you see the uh, you see the family in their regular, uh, you know, in their, their you know in their work in their workspace. You see them in their uh, uh, daily routines. You see them in their religious life, and then what happens is events sort of just coalesce into around one particular event which is this uh this killing you have described your your book and your novel as one that's character driven is there a an author or is there a style of writing that you have admired for quite some time that may have crept into your style of writing as well well i like a technique and i it's more movie uh more movie uh based than it is writing based i like to call it cross-cutting What it is, is I like to take a lot of characters, and this is a story that calls for a lot of characters. And what I do is to tell parts of their story. Uh, Almost every chapter tells a part of a few characters' stories. And in the beginning, you really don't know where it's all going. You're seeing events that are happening in Massachusetts. You're seeing events that happen in Latin America. You see events that happen in Rome, the Vatican. And uh, all of it com- seems completely unrelated. But the one thing that ties it all together is really the whole relationship that the characters have to the church. And then as the book proceeds, what happens is the, the uh, characters begin to intersect and a lot of the meaning begins to come out. And then pretty soon they're on a collision course. Hmm. And as the book develops, uh, the stories become much more related and characters start to meet each other, interact with each other, and then a lot of interesting things happen, uh, which are very, very factual based. Uh, You've mentioned 1970 as the general time frame that this story begins. How long does it progress, or how, what is the time frame that it, it covers? It begins in the early 60s and winds up in 1986. And in 1986, that is still before the first really big headlines started to occur. The real publicity about the uh, crisis in the American church came after the millennium. The millennium. But in the late 90s, there was a lot of issues that came out, too. Uh, but what happened was it would always seem to come out and then 
go underground again and then only to surface later. And uh, so the reason I chose 1986 is because there were people within the church who tried to warn the hierarchy that they were going to have a big problem on their hands. And basically their efforts came to naught. They, they, they were never able to uh, succeed in being able to uh, bring some solutions to the fore that they could get the hierarchy to agree with. So that's kind of what I, uh, the reason I kind of wrapped it up at about that time was because I thought that most people wouldn't know what happened in those decades before. And yet it was a, it was just, it was an accident waiting to happen. You could just see, mm. it. you just knew that sooner or later, uh, it was going to all come out. And it's interesting because it's come out not just in the United States, it's come out in Latin America. And just last week, for instance, there were articles about, uh, uh, Missouri. There was a, in, in the United States, there was an article about a Chilean bishop in uh, South America. And so uh, it's almost like uh, no matter what happens, you can pick up the paper and you're still going to see an offshoot of the same crisis, uh, particularly as the church moves in the areas that developed as Europe or uh, the United States. Is there an underlying message that you would hope to portray in your book, in your novel? Uh, I think that, you know, I, I, I would hate for it to be perceived as an anti-Catholic novel. I think the thing is, the, the thing that I like to always remember is the essential goodness of Catholic people. And the fact that uh, if you look at how, uh, if, if people put their faith into practice and they follow the teachings of Jesus the way you're taught, you know, as a young Catholic, uh, they'll be just fine. The problem comes in when you have hierarchies and you have power. And uh, basically, uh, you know, hierarchies are actually bureaucracies, and really the first rule of any bureaucracy is to uh, preserve itself. And so they'll do almost anything to preserve the institution, and that's where you get into trouble. That's where mistakes get made. Is there an is there an age an age range that this is appropriate for, or is this something that might appeal to a, a total uh, wide range? audience I, I would think so because I think that right now the, 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 the whole question of religion what will you, what will you do for your religion I mean we see it mm-hmm. you know we're certainly seeing it in uh, the Middle East we're seeing it you know with the rise of groups like Isis what is a legitimate what is a legitimate act that you could justify in terms of re- your religion uh, and so that's why I think that uh, what you know what uh, you know what I, you know, what people will do to preserve what they think is something more important than the actual uh, teachings itself, you know. And right. So that's why I think it would appeal to a wider audience. I think that uh, the problems that, uh, that uh, the church had in dealing with this crisis are the problems that any institution has. I mean, look at Penn State, you know, mm-hmm. the whole situation they had with uh, Coach Paterno. That's true. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. And... Uh, you know, institutions circle the wagons. Uh, you got the same thing going on in New Jersey over the bridge. You know, the bridge, what they call Bridgegate. And it's, it's just the same old story. You know, once you, you know, you try to keep things, you, you try to lose your transparency and keep things from coming out, you can justify almost anything. And, and a lot of that went on. I mean, some of the tax, the tactics that were used by attorneys to keep people quiet, you know, would be, you know, just blatant intimidation. 
you know, and a lot of the people that were intimidated were people that couldn't afford to uh, do anything Don't except acquiesce. You know, and yeah, we've ex- we've experienced a little bit of that in the hospital situation recently in our family. So I uh, I, I understand what you're saying. This is you have a very full plate uh, from what you've described about your life and the activities you're involved in. This must have taken a long time to complete. Did you did you start with an outline? How did you begin the process, and how long did it take to complete? Well, what I did was I, I started by uh, I started going to newspapers. I started I, I saw I would see something that really interested me. I would see a case in 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 in, in this particular case. There was you know one was a uh, you know a murder that did occur. It occurred later, and then I, I also learned about a fatal accident that had occurred about the same time. And I looked. I started doing the clippings and. Uh, I just started doing a, little, a lot of research about it. One of the things that really got me going is in 1995, I did a volunteer trip to, uh, to Ecuador, and I went with a burn team from a hospital in, uh, in uh, Toronto. So our job, a friend of mine and I, our job was to uh, document what they were doing with these kids. And so we were working in a public hospital in Guayaquil, Ecuador. And the women, the nurses, everybody who worked in there, the, you know, they, the, 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 the locals, they were all Catholics. And I'd also been doing some volunteer work in, on the streets of Lawrence with a soup kitchen. I did that for about 13 years. Most of the people who worked there were Catholic. And I was really, you know, I was really moved by the example of a lot of people who put the faith into practice as opposed to, say, making sure they went to church every Sunday and following all the rules, etc., etc. And, you know, some of them were divorced, some of them, you know, had all kinds of issues, uh, but the essential goodness of what they did made a real impression on me. So, you know, I I was doing a lot of research, and then it just started to come together, and uh, I worked on it for about a decade. Well, I love the tagline that you put in here. It's a real hook, and I'm and as a movie producer and and special producer using video content, I understand why you put that on the cover. In May 1970, an altar boy was murdered in Massachusetts. The crime will never be solved. the The title of the book, the main title, is Ordinary Evil. Our author Gene Ferraro has joined me from Massachusetts, sir. Where do we get copies of your book? Uh, you can get the book uh, from uh, Amazon.com. Just look up Ordinary Evil. It'll be there, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, it's in some independent bookstores. And then you can order it from uh, iUniverse. Uh, so it's uh, pretty easy to get. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you can get it as a download. You can get it as a hardbound or a paperback. Any follow-up uh, and, uh, books in the process, in the works right now? Doing notes on a couple of different ideas. One is about... Uh, one is about how, uh, you know, uh, I had an interesting experience where my dad, who was a decorated World War II veteran, happened to have the same name as a major deadbeat who collection agencies were going mm. after. Uh-huh. So he was, you know, while he was alive, he's been gone quite a while now, but while he, and it was really interesting, it got into the whole way that debt is collected and how everybody's in, you know, the, the, the uh, probate, not the probate, but the, uh, the local courts, the bailiffs, the, uh, the sheriffs, and all of these other people are in cahoots with the, death, with the debt collection agencies. So I thought that might be an interesting piece for a thriller. I the think other it thing, would. I, I would like to do a piece about in, uh, in the whole idea of how it was very, very much a part of American culture in the uh, 30s and the 40s. 
that it was not something that the uh, Germans, the Nazis, were the only ones involved in, that a lot of things happened. And again, you know, an awful lot of things got done in the name of science, in the name of accomplishing good that basically were pretty evil. Gene, you have an unusual title, Ordinary Evil. Why that title and what's the significance? Well, originally we were going to call the book Ordinary, and Ordinary uh, ordinary has a really a double meaning. Uh, when we think about, in church parlance, an ordinary is either a bishop, a cardinal, or the pope himself. And ordinary is a, is a term that relates to their power. It means that they have complete jurisdiction within their sphere. Hmm. They're all powerful within their sphere. And this is the reason, one of the reasons why bishops had so much problems, and a lot of the problems really in the uh, sexual abuse crisis all relate back to the bishops and how they use their power. But at the same time, it means power in the church parlance. Uh, it, you know, it's also about ordinary people, people like you, people like me, uh, ordinary Catholics. So I thought that it was, a very, it was an interesting way of looking at it, and the evil kind of stems from the power. It's not like it's a horror story, although in a way it is, I suppose it is a horror story. But uh, it's, uh, it, seemed like a good, it seemed like a good title to be able to bring people in that really had some sense of meaning to the plot itself. Fascinating topic, and and with your background in movie uh, movie history, you may have uh, a desire to see this ordinary evil put into film content as well. Best of luck with that, and hope to hear from right, you in the future. You. Well, thank you very, very much. Honored to visit with you. My guest again has been Gene Ferraro, who's joined me from near Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States. Thank you, Gene, for joining me today. Best of luck. I appreciate it. Thank you very My much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Incoming. Collected Stories, and joining me from Michigan in the United States is author Vic Amato. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Oh, yes, like an English tomato. Well, just, uh, hi, Jay. Uh, <laughs> pleasure, pleasure to visit with you. Uh, as I mentioned in our pre-interview, I have grown up in your general vicinity and uh, love that part of the country. You have uh, have not been an uh, author all of your life, have you? Or is this something new or something that no, is an uh, extension? <laughs> I was born in Iowa. I grew up in uh, Ohio, and I moved to Michigan after college in the Army. 
and I've stayed in port here and ever since then. We uh, toyed with moving other places, but uh, never, I never actually did it. So. Just got stuck Been here there. a long time. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful yeah, area. kind of, but uh, we like uh, the, the Detroit uh, metropolitan area and where we are. We're close to Canada and in uh, all of Michigan's uh, recreational uh, opportunities. Fantastic. Your book is a, co- is a collection of stories. It's not just a single single read. You have uh, 204 pages in your book. How many stories did you include, and where did they come from? It's 16 stories. Uh, uh, it's, it's a long collection. I cover a lot of areas. Uh, I've been writing <clears throat> for more than 10 years, but uh, I've rewritten them all recently. So uh, it, it's, it's quite a few stories. Did you have uh, a desire to be a published author for a long time? I know you have done some articles and other things in your history. You were uh, involved in the newspaper trade for a while. Uh, I worked for several newspapers. Okay. And uh, then uh, I uh, got sidetracked into public administration and I got some more degrees there. But uh, writing was always in, in the back. And uh, sometimes I got the agency news, newsletter. I wrote the chair of the policy and procedures committee. So I, I was always doing a lot of writing. And uh, uh, as I retired, I thought of uh, ways of uh, using my creativity and, and a little uh, artistic output, and so I decided to put together a collection of stories, and uh, this is what uh, it came about. Vic, how long did it take to, to get started in writing the stories? Did you have a, a general idea of the content of the book before you started, or did you just start uh, accumulating ideas and putting them into, into print form? Well, I was one story at a time, like uh, one author said, one bird at a time. You just uh, uh, knock one off. But I kind of had a general theme of uh, men trying to cope in a modern society, but not all the stories of that way. Some of them just uh, had ideas out of the blue that I uh, you know, worked out as a story. Uh, would, you, would you describe this from what you have uh, said to this moment? It sounds like they may be character-driven, or are they moral-driven? More character-driven, I think. Uh, my stories are, are basically not all positive or have a positive outcome. or, or uh, They're usually fairly involved. Uh, uh, they're about something. Uh, they're right. not uh, just uh, two people uh, complaining about their relationship, as you've seen some short stories. Sure. Your first story got my attention. You mentioned that they're all positive, but <laughs> this one is uh, titled Death by Peanut Butter. That's... Uh... That's an unusual title. Share a little of that background well, story. Well, I, I, that one is uh, closer to where I actually worked, but uh, uh, it, it's that one shows sort of the pathos of uh, mental health treatment and, and uh, uh, people investigating problems uh, with, with uh, abusive clients uh, hmm. and uh, what you have to work with in the local bureaucracy. It's, it's, it's still a little taste of life. It's a, a little warm-up story, uh, not uh, very strong, but but uh, it features a death by peanut butter. Death by peanut butter. Is there any of your stories that would be uh, maybe approached from a, hum- a humorous standpoint, or are they all pretty serious? Well, there may be a little humor in the death by peanut butter. It, it, it's sort of perhaps dark humor. Uh, uh-huh. Some of them are quite, and there's a little humor in all of them, I think. Certainly, the result of Broken Bat, Bat Single would be humorous. Uh, a major leaguer who is uh, hallucinates a little bit from his uh, taking steroids and goes a little Who Ripped Off My Lunch is a short short. <clears throat> it's kind of cute. Man 
looks in the refrigerator at uh, his workplace and his lunch is gone. And, uh-huh. and he goes searching to see what happened to his prolonged lunch. And uh, that's a short one. And humorous. Rex, Rex Civil declines. Yes, I see that. Yes, that's that's a tongue-in-cheek story all the way. And if you, if it is totally humorous, but it take, may take you a little bit to catch on to it. And, uh, as, and there are there are humorous aspects in most of the stories. You you have written this, but did you have a, a specific idea who might enjoy reading your book or your stories? Uh, was there a specific audience that you had in mind, or was this kind of open to anybody who just might like a read? Well, I think it's it for everyone. Uh, I don't have a particular picture audience in in mind. I do read things like. Uh, Best American short stories and things like that, and, and that has uh, affected me. I'm kind of uh, writing to people who might appreciate such things, and uh, but uh, it, it's it's for a general audience. Sure, uh, Vic. How long did it take to complete your accumulation of stories? Oh, I don't know. It, it, someone I wrote a, a first draft of many years ago, uh, but probably when I was uh, three or four years getting them all together and things. Sure. The last one I completed just about a year ago. So. I have uh, talked to some authors that take uh, 15, 20 years to develop a storyline, and, of course, with small independent stories and independent storylines, I, it, it, I would think be uh, slightly easier to do. Have you decided whether you want to do a sequel to this particular collection? Well, it wouldn't be a sequel, but I'd like to continue writing short stories. I, I, I like short stories. I, I can't think of an idea that I can sustain, sustain long enough to be a novel. If I do, maybe I'll write a novel. But uh, I like short stories, especially short story collections, which you can kind of read like a novel. You, you get the authors you know, thinking on a lot of different things, and one story kind of leads to another. Or it, I really enjoy them. And you're not committed too much when you read a short story. You, you can... You can read it in an hour or less, and then, then you then you set it down and go do something else. And tomorrow or three days from now, you can pick it up again and read another short story. And uh, uh, or you can read five short stories in a row. It's and they're they're clever little vignettes of pieces. I think that uh, short stories are uh, the highest form of, of fiction writing. Uh, they they really have to be concise and, and grab you, and, and uh, uh, they're really thought-provoking, I think. Is there a story that you've penned, and that's in this book, that you think is uh, possibly your favorite, and one that could be picked up and maybe used in a short story television plot? Uh, I think a lot of these could be used in a short story television plot. And, and in fact, the, some of the best movies are made of uh, short stories, That's like true. Uh, Love Story, uh, The Man Who Would Be King. But uh, people say you know, the best story is Dad List, which uh, talks about a uh, mature father's emotions when his son begins to fail the same way he did. And uh, mm. it's kind of shocking what happens in that one. But uh, I think most of the stories are pretty much the same quality. Uh, I think Back to Sleep is a very good story, uh, and uh, I like Death by Peanut Butter, of course. Scarlet Amber, Broken Bat, Bat, Broken Bat Single, they are, are uh, pretty much the same level of, of fiction, I think. And stories that you loved, were there some challenges in, in deciding what to publish, or were these everything you had at the moment? Uh, well... I've got about ten stories that are not quite finished, and the reason they're not quite finished is that they don't uh, work very well. So these are the 
the 16 that were finished and polished and ready to go. Some of them don't quite fit in the uh, uh, theme of the others, but uh, they, I like them all. The, the story that seems to be least popular is uh, Everyone Hates Malvolio, which is a, a little bit Shakespearean. It, it uh, is a takeoff on uh, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night from mm-hmm. the poor manager's point of view who he's picked on. But uh, uh, I like that story, and everyone else hates it. So, so but just one story. It's the 15th story. If people don't want to go through that, they can skip it. That's, you know, that's the heaviest story of all of them. Is it the heaviest? You've gotten some decent reviews, I would say. Uh, who has uh, been of note that has read your book and given you a positive support on, on how you've approached your writing? Well, it's a little bit early days on the reviews. I have some come in, come out yet. But uh, the people who've read it uh, really enjoyed it. They uh, they can't put it down, and that has an emotional impact on them. And it's very entertaining. They pick out stories. Uh, they seem like different stories than I like. They like uh, Broken Bat Single and the, the steroid uh, story. And Camille is is a story of of a breakup. It's a breakup of a relationship story. Mm. as is Scarlet Amber. So far, I'm very pleased with uh, the reviews I've got, but uh, it, I expect to have... Uh, I haven't seen very many professional uh, reviews yet. Not yet, Still but you have... Waiting you, for that. Yes, I, I'm sure it will come. You have uh, have received a little bit of a uh, commendation from an author of I Will Love You and the Rest of My Life, Breakup Stories Oh, yes, in yeah, Michael Yuski. Yes. Uh, I was so happy with that. Uh, uh, he, he's a very professional person. He's head of the writing program from Missouri State University. And uh, uh, I've sent him a lot of my stories <laughs> over the years. Now, Vic, in addition to being an author, you also, I've found, uh, are, are a juggler. Uh, you play tennis. And <laughs> you're a musician. What other things are you hiding from us? Well, I keep really busy. Uh, juggling, uh, by the way, uh, uh, stimulates the mind. It's one of the few things that's been proven to grow new brain cells, and it uh, helps in your decision-making. So I juggle a little every day, and it's really fun. Uh, huh. It's something I learned, uh, uh, taught myself during television commercials. Really? When I was about 40. <laughs> you, you must be very good and, at it, then. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I, I juggle. I was in a, a Shakespearean festival here, and, and I had a little part. I played a king. But also, when I wasn't doing that, I was a gesture, and I, and, and I juggled and told jokes. Uh, as, as I'm juggling, I say, did you hear about the poor sick juggler? He's always throwing up. <laughs> That's Peter, I guess. Continue writing. Continue writing, Anyway, Jake. I try to keep busy. I do a lot of things uh, uh, besides writing. I play tennis and act when I get a chance. And, and I work out every day. I got one of these fit bits on my wrist and oh, challenge me to get my steps in every day. Keeping busy. I, I, uh, I appreciate your taking time out of your juggling and uh, having a fit uh, to talk with me this morning. <laughs> I juggled this morning to get my, my mind going. <laughs> Wonderful. You have done a great job on a first edition or first release. From talking with you, get the impression that perhaps there's something to come in the future. You're still working on other things and uh, developing your craft. How soon do you think the next edition might come out? Well, I'm hoping two years. Uh, I'm sure if I can, but uh, uh, this uh, uh, publicizing your own work is uh, takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of your writing time away. Yes. And, uh, uh, you have to you have to have more and more self discipline to get yourself, you know, a button chair to to uh, start uh, writing. 
You've done a great job, and in describing your stories, I think you have introduced your book well to the people who are listening today. Again, the title of the book, Incoming Collected Stories, and our author, Vic Amato, has joined me from the Port Huron area of Michigan in the United States. Vic, uh, my listeners are going to want to get a copy of this for a bedside read or just a casual, Mm -hmm. uh, entertaining read. Where do they get a copy? Well, it's available with uh, Barnes & Noble uh, online and also as a digital copy, and it's available with Amazon the same way, uh, either order it from Amazon or as a digital copy. It's fourteen ninety five and three ninety five as a digital copy. Excellent. And they can do a search under your name, A-M-A-T-O, sure. should they choose, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe find it that way or also keep in touch with you That's should great. a next book get released. Vic, thank you for joining me today and sharing mm-hmm. your story. Well, thank you for the interview. I appreciate it. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Devils or Angels, the collection, Handsome Devil. And the author is Dan Robertson. And Dan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dan. Hello, how are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, This is really uh, quite a think piece. Uh, It is a collection, as you say, because it deals with prose and poems. And we're going to talk a little bit about your short stories and have you read a couple of your poems to us in uh, in a bit here. But first of all, just to kind of sum up your book, uh, you talk about your book, it's all about choices, decisions, and motives. So... Devils or angels, uh, a little bit of each in every one of us? I think that everybody has a little bit of, you know, a little bit of devil and angel in them because everybody has, maybe mostly good, but there's a little bit of bad things or bad choices that they can make at any time. And that's, that's, that's a good thing, actually, because if you don't have, um, if you don't make choices, you don't learn anything. Sometimes the, the problems that you run into and you, overcome, that's when you find out you really learn the most. So can love and hate exist side by side? I think they can. I think, you know, even if you're talking about just a, a, in reality of a neighborhood, you can have someone that, that's really loving in maybe in one house, and the next house you'd have someone that, that hates 
because, but you don't know why the hate is there. You know, they know maybe, or maybe they don't even know. So sometimes you know we're we're you know, brought through these problems, and we have to learn to, to overcome them because you know just the, just the way we react to them. Well, before we learn more about your book, Devils or Angels, Dan, tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book. Well, I graduated from Sacramento State University. That's, well, that's in California. That's in Sacramento. Um, with that, a Bachelor of Arts in Literature. But uh, I, I was a teacher for 45 years. I was going everything. I, I was trying to always encourage people to, to do their very best. And, but as I was going along, I also found out that there were a lot of things that I was, that sometimes I made mistakes too. But, you know, I didn't want people to, to know that, to think that if you make a mistake that, that you're stuck there. Because once you get to the place where you can, you know, you reach an obstacle and you, you can overcome it, that's when you really start growing. And I wanted, you know, the, I want my students to know that that's, that's when they were going to become powerful you know they could take um, words and and because I was in literature and in English at first um, I wanted them to know that words are very powerful and if and if, if they use those words powerful I mean, if they use those words in a good way towards people they can encourage people if they use them in a bad way they can destroy things and I found out that just for myself as a poet I found out that I was wiser sometimes than I thought of what than I normally thought I was but I could see things pretty clear sometimes and I could mix fantasy and reality and and know and, and sometimes it would make me look like I really knew what I was doing but I also made mistakes I learned a lot from those mistakes and the more mistakes I made the wiser I became I think and if you make those mistakes you know you're, you're deciding your own fate when you make your choices and decisions based on those mistakes if you feel guilty and you want to do something about it, you can. You're never you're never stuck in the place where you just damaged goods. Right now, all the things that have happened in your past, they they make you that wise or that good person that you are right now. And if you like who you are, right now is the part that's important because the future is, is you're going to be going places with a lot of potential. Well, that's very well said, Dan. I think all of us sometimes are our own worst enemy, if you would. You know, we kind of uh, paint ourselves into a corner where there's no way out. Well, the the problem is, is when it's not when we're, we make a good decision or a bad decision. It's the, the worst problem is, is when we, we're just kind of hesitating. We just kind of get caught in that rut where we don't know whether to go forward or go back or whatever. That's when we get to get taken advantage of. That's when things don't go well for us at all. It's better to just jump ahead and make a mistake, because then you can correct it. But if you don't make any, if you don't make any choices at all, you're stuck. So it's a spiritual battle. Well, you could say it's a spiritual battle, but even if you're, you know, even if you're not a, what you think is a spiritual person, you still, you know, you're out there deciding whether you're you're helping people or whether you're you're or helping yourself. Or whether you're going to just, you know, get in somebody else's way. And most people go around in kind of an isolated lethargy, you know, where they're just kind of they think they're they're, they're they think they're all by themselves, but they're not. The world is, you know, out there, and they can they can interact with other people, and that can spur them on to do great things. 
So it's all about the motive. I, th I think it's mostly about the motive, yes, because, you know, if if you decide, you know, that you want to do something, I think you, you, the only thing that's going to hold you back is you. you know, and, and if you say, you know, there's some people out there that hate, well, love conquers hate. Love is always more powerful than hate. It's just that sometimes it seems like it moves slowly. If you love more, your hate will just kind of dissolve or, or disappear in front of you. Tell us a little bit about some themes of your short stories. One of the stories is called A Crooked Man. A crooked Man sounds like someone that's, that's really maybe evil. In this case, the, the Crooked Man is, is very, very honest. He starts out as a handicapped person. And the doctor just says he's a crooked little fellow because he has a bad ankle or a bad foot. But he uses that to, to his own advantage. He goes, he goes into school. He, he learns to overcome, overcome his handicaps. He goes to sports. And that becomes a, a, an asset also. He, first he goes into a job. He becomes a lawyer. He's known as the crooked lawyer, but, but he's the most honest lawyer around. And he goes from, then he's, he's able to, uh, to go to crooks. He's, he gets, goes to the point where he defends crooks, but they don't like being uh, necessarily in, uh, in his area. They don't like to do bad things in his area because they think he sees through them. And so, but they support him and they find out that sometimes they can turn to the good and still make profits and everything, and they're okay with that. He goes from uh, being a lawyer to a politician, so he becomes a crooked politician. Now, the people that are behind all this, and they're behind him going into the politics and everything, their motives are not very good. But because this because the crooked man continues on and tries to do things the way he believes, he stands with his, his convictions, because he stands with those, he's able to get a grassroots support, and he goes way beyond what, he, what anybody thought he could do. And I kind of left it open-ended at the end because we have a lot of political races going on and we have we always seem to have those. And, yeah, and people have to decide, you know, are they just going to stand by and watch? Or are they going to make choices too? And sometimes they need to find out someone that, that knows what they want, you know, find a candidate that knows what he wants and he will go after things. That's what kind of what that one's about. It, it's, it's actually a, a fun book. And I think you might, as some the reader would enjoy parts of it just for the fun of it. But on the other hand, it's something that they could really put a lot of thought into and find out that it, it's actually has a lot of wisdom behind parts of it. Could you read one of your poems? I could. Um, let me read um, Condemned for Loving Too Much. All was quiet in this forgotten town. A record snow was tumbling down. Yet in the plaza, crowds were shopping still, looking for entertainment to get their fill. There were walkers and talkers, shops all ablaze, restaurants still open but countless delays. Marge was waiting patiently and talking to a friend. The day had been perfect. She didn't want it to end. Somehow she noticed him standing away from the crowd, his gray eyes fixed on her, haughty and proud. His soft brown coat, his lean frame, the thin twisted nose. Why she alone could see him, she could only suppose. His eyes asked questions which seemed to strip her bare. What kind of man was he? One who didn't care? Was he an angry ghost or a demon of some kind? Why was his thoughts penetrating her mind? 
Somehow in his hands he held her new fate. She thought, is it possible to love someone you hate? As this thought surfaced, Marge pushed it away. She had never seen him before, not until today. He is not attractive, she thought, not in the least. Yet his eyes devoured her as if she were a feast. Her face flushed and deep within her and deep within the heat began, rising in waves until perspiration ran. Feeling uncomfortable, she needed time to think. His eyes locked on her, not once did he blink. Is it possible to love your enemy, she thought. What is it about me that's what eagerly thought? She was 33 years old, for goodness sake. Ten pounds too heavy, give or take. Yet she was flattered by his attention even more. Unlike her friends, all her faults he chose to ignore. He willed her to move forward, but he didn't insist. She closed her eyes, as if helpless to resist. Silently, Marge turned, her demon she faced. When he smiled, her legs trembled, her heart raced. She took one step forward, two, then three, unbuttoned her blouse, letting him see. She hated him, but with strength from above, her body yielded to his mind, and she melted into love. Seeking his hatred, contempt, contempt, his crimes to pay, doing what she could, loving his hate away. An act of love determined Marge's fate. Is it possible to love someone you hate? All is quiet again in this forgotten town, but there is one less demon standing around. No one wants to question or be out of touch. Should Marge be condemned for loving too much? So you leave the reader with a question, and the reader can make his own decisions. I don't want to you know, choose. Actually, when I wrote the story, I'm not sure that I like where it went or anything. It kind of went on its own. And then I found out that you know a lot of people like that um, the, the question, and I, I found out that that was beginning began to grow on me too because you know. Can love overcome evil? You know, that's what I said earlier, and I wasn't quite sure that it could all the time, but I came to the, to, to the conclusion that it can. But, you know, I, I do leave the readers a lot with, with their own thoughts, and, and I want them to think for themselves. So you want the reader to decide whether each character is good or evil at the conclusion of the story. You leave it up to them, and I guess that is thus the, if you will, the magic of the story whether it's through prose or the poem. Uh, the poem, certainly uh, a lot of emotions in that poem that you just read to us and a lot of images in our mind. Yes. And, and I'm finding figures like that poem, there's some people that told me that they absolutely loved it, and there's other people that told me they hated it. And it, it, it could be brought into a complete story, for that matter. But, you know, this is a, just as kind of a short story in, in, in itself, but I do think that people need to make their own decisions on you know, where they want to go with that, you know, whether they're religious or not. We've been talking with Dan Robertson. He is the author of his book, Devils or Angels, the collection. Dan is both a writer of prose and poems, and thus his book is filled with, with both and with uh, a purpose to Make us think. I think that is your purpose. I think, you know, that one, yes, I want you to make decisions and choices, you know, about, about what you think is important in life, you know, or if, if someone is hurting someone, does that make that person a bad person? And I would say, yes, if that person, if you make someone feel good, that would make you have, you'd be a good person. 
And but sometimes, you know, the things that we do are judged by other people, and that's not really what what I'm all about. And, you know, if if you can make someone feel good, I think you're doing good things. In the poem that I just read, you know, the the, the lady does something. You know, I mean, she changes that demon into something good. So was that is she a good person or a bad person? Dan, what's the best way to get your book, Devils or Angels? Well, it's on Amazon. I noticed it's on Amazon Books. You can get it there, or you can get it at iUniverse. It's also there. And I hope to have a website that I will be able to sell, or you'll be able to get this book and, and a couple of other ones, yes. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.